0: Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show, Dr. Asya Kazmi, OBE, of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where she is the Global Education Policy Lead And we're going to be talking about education, SDG 4, Sustainable Development Goal 4, looking at numeracy and literacy in particular, the solutions to trying to drive forward, even a bit of ed tech, and what it's like working with governments and organizations such as the World Bank and UNICEF to drive this field forward. We'll hear a little bit of insight of what philanthropists should be focusing on when contemplating getting involved in the space of education. And you'll enjoy this show. It's full of insight. And really great energy. So, without further ado, Asya, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to speak to you, and I look forward to our conversation.
0: Absolutely, and it's great to see you again. I know we normally see each other at the uh, at the Global Council meetings for Stir Education, so it's nice to see you in a, in a different context today. Likewise, and obviously, you're you know you work for one of those very. Uh, little-known foundations out there, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Give us an, an overview of what that's all about.
1: So obviously, um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is very well known. Um, there's two aspects of the goals that really inspire me. One is all lives have equal value and that we are impatient optimists. And both of those things really resonate with me. So um, people are familiar perhaps more with the Gates Foundation's U.S. Education Programme, which is well-established and large programme, and um, the Global Education Team um, is, a, is a small team of four people. The programme started in 2018 as a learning strategy, and then last year we were... Um, inducted into for want of a better word the global growth and opportunity division and became a program strategy team and um, the focus of our work is very simple and there's a key statistics that drives our work which is if you're born in a high-income country nine out of ten children can read by the age of 10 but if you're born in a low-income country nine out of ten children cannot and that is a shocking statistic and and it's uh, a key equity issue, and that is the focus. Alongside numeracy with um, similar data, that is the focus of the global education team's work.
0: Amazing, and so tell me, sustainable development goal four, SDG four, education, a uh, big challenge. Obviously, I mean, the, in, I don't want to use the word insurmountable, but it's let's say a, a, a huge task to to try to see whether these SDG targets uh, for SDG four are, are going to be met in twenty thirty um what's the world look like right now and I know we're well hopefully at the tail end of the pandemic but h- how would you characterize things especially with girls who maybe had to leave education who may never come back and what's the state of affairs
1: yeah so uh, our focus particularly is SDG 4.1.1 1, 1 a and b which is literacy and numeracy for girls and boys by end of grade two, three, and by end of primary. And we're off target. So we were off target um, before the pandemic, where nearly half the children were not able to read and write globally. And currently, because of the pandemic, sustained school closures, obviously, um, not only did we see the importance of um, schools as, as a sort of social fabric, Um, Within societies, we obviously have had pandemic-related learning losses. So now, seven out of ten children in low-middle-income countries are not able to read and write um, and do basic maths. And in sub-Saharan Africa, that's nearly nine out of ten. So we're off trajectory. The good news is we have solutions. We know how to fix this problem And combined with political will, a real focus on implementation of evidence-based solutions, and I'm happy to talk about more of some of those later, we can not only uh, address the learning losses, but be in a better place than we were before the pandemic.
0: Mm. So you're looking at numeracy, literacy, primary school age is really that age bracket for you. I could stand corrected here but my understanding and an example that I I always mention to people when I'm talking about the relative small size of philanthropy is that even the Gates Foundation with all its uh, all of its resources and large endowment can't meet the education budget of a single US state for more than 2 years right so you, so even you guys being huge within the philanthropy world are very small within the the global context how can you drive forward some of these uh, initiatives and, and aspirations and objectives that you want to achieve with your re- relative small size.
1: Exactly, about, uh, Um the, the donor budget is small within that philanthropy is really small. Um, so our role isn't to make it happen. It is to support um, the availability of evidence and information and what we call public goods to highlight Perhaps what what the issue of concern is to highlight what the solutions are to invest in research, so governments, if they want to work on this agenda, have better tools and evidence to actually address this issue um and, and I think this is this is where we, when you reflect on the role of philanthropy, the way in the way the global education team is interpreting is how can we help? Um, governments who want to work on this agenda um, with the right resources, tools, evidence and innovation to do so and make their own much, much more substantial budgets be more effectively, and more efficiently spent.
0: Right. So are you engaging with uh, governments across the globe? I mean, is, are there particular areas or?
1: So um, we have three key levers to our strategy. The first one is um, increased focus. um On foundation literacy and numeracy, raising the awareness of the statistics and and how actually it's essentially the foundations of achieving um, much wider education goals and also mutual monitoring and accountability of progress. So, here in this lever, the issue is about looking at data and have uh, assessment information to so supporting high quality, regular, comparable data on learning and using that data to inform action and link to that, having advocacy for action. So we have increased political salience for literacy and numeracy, that we have increased awareness of what the solutions are, as well as making use of data and that sufficient resources, both in terms of um budget within education um, budgets, as well as the right people and and knowledge on this. The second lever is better knowledge and tools, and I alluded this to earlier, um, but better knowledge on tools on how to improve teaching and learning solutions for um, foundation literacy and numeracy and strengthening research on systems and being able to take those um, solutions to scale. And thirdly, is supporting country knowledge and capacity on um, how to improve um, FLN. And here are, um, given we're a, a small team, our uh, main focus is India and Sub Saharan Africa. We've had a uh, very much a, a public goods agenda. So the lens that we look at it is how do we work with local partners to. Um, unearth the research the evidence and the solution and in sub-saharan africa we are partnering with the world bank and have um on their accelerator program which in in sub-saharan africa focuses on um, five countries in particular but the program itself is widened.
0: right yeah i was going to ask you about that whether you're using organizations like the world bank perhaps as a distribution mechanism, letting them be the focal point through which you communicate with national governments versus you directly engaging with those national governments or whether you do these concurrently in parallel?
1: So we have a range of partners, UNESCO Institute of Statistics, UNICEF, World Bank. We um, collaborate and partner with um, FCDO, USAID, um, et cetera. And then at country um, country level, uh, uh, oh no, still saying at global level. Research organisations, research institutions, and at country level, partners within country. So um, a range of partners um, who are working on similar um, agenda and collaborating with them. As I said, you know, um, with, um, being a small team, clearly um, working with partners. Is the right thing to do, so we benefit from collaboration and are about our intentional about it.
0: Great, and I know one of the areas that in in your work that you do now that you look at is uh, education technology or ed tech. And I'm always curious about that. And I think you know you you hear the word scalability, scale, scalability, and and you put that side by side with this the the sheer scale of the problem. I'm curious, what how um, how relevant is EdTech you know, to helping us achieve what we want to achieve?
1: So I think there's two ways of looking at this. First of all, it's my own personal experience, having been a teacher, having been a teacher coach and, and supporting teachers um, as, as a math teacher, supporting them to think about how technology can enhance teaching and learning. And you can't just give teachers technology and expect it to be taken up. Um, You have to be there with them, supporting, innovating, trying out. Um, And certainly, uh, you know, I have knowledge of using them with my own classroom. And if it takes 10, 15 minutes to load it up and, you know, have sort out all the technical issues and you've only got a 45 minute lesson, you're going to be a little bit more sceptical about it. Um, But thinking about it, where we are now. So I was obviously teaching a while ago, thinking about it where we are now. Our focus, when I talked about the second lever on teaching and learning solutions, is, is mainly on um, non-tech mechanisms for teaching and learning. However, technology may well be a, a mechanism to enhance the teaching and learning process, but we need to research it better. We need to understand Um, First of all, what are quality solutions for underserved populations? Um, So it's not a case of taking something that's in America and putting it in a a rural Zambia or rural um, um, village in India and expecting it to work. It needs to be personalised, it needs to be contextualised, it needs to link to the national curriculum, and it needs to be high quality. I'm seeing too many products that, um, that are perhaps not rooted in the science of teaching and learning, don't have strong pedagogy, um, et cetera. Secondly, if you have those solutions, you need evidence on those solutions. Um, Are these uh, solutions rigorous? How do, we, how do they work? How do they interact with maybe if it's a home-based solution? What do parents need to know? If it's a school-based solution, what do teachers need to know? And thirdly, if you have the first two, so you have, um, you have quality products, you have evidence to say they're quality, this is how much it's going to cost, etc. You need to support governments to be able to procure effectively at scale and manage those performances and have them budgeted. Now, when you look at the global education space, there aren't solutions for underserved populations that are massively working at scale. However, there are solutions, um, particularly in the literacy and numeracy space that say personalised adaptive learning solutions that there is evidence to say it can improve impact. Um, Those solutions perhaps not necessarily have scaled. Um, And then there's obviously a lot of interest in how um, education technology can support teachers' professional development, both in terms of developing their content knowledge, but also in terms of helping them to... Um, helping them in actually the process of teaching. And again, we need more evidence on what the optimal solution is, how to support teachers more effectively to do that. So we are partners with FCDO and World Bank in the EdTech Hub space. Um, in India Central Square Foundation is doing some really interesting work in, in researching and applying research and understanding the kind of solutions work and for whom? Do they work equally for girls and boys? If not, how do we make it so? And, and the big thing is, do these solutions improve learning outcomes? Um, so I think it's um it's an interesting space, more research and more work is needed. Um, and and we
0: we are supporting them. Mm. Now you use the word quality and indeed throughout everything you're saying here, that's what I hear is quality, whether you're saying it overtly or otherwise. But and I don't know if you remember, but a few years back when Jim Kim was still president of the World Bank, he was trying to to bring up the human capital um project. And one of the things he was saying was looking at quality adjusted years in education. In other words, a year of education in South Korea or Singapore is not necessarily equivalent to a year's education in South Sudan. And so how how do we focus on those outputs and and that quality, and maybe not getting so fixated on necessarily how many years you're in there? Because you might be in there for just the same number of years, but you're not walking away better off.
1: Exactly. Um, so when we speak about the statistics of nine out of 10 children, um, not being able uh, to read and write and do basic maths by the age of 10. Most of those schools, most of those children are in school. So what is happening in school, the quality of teaching and learning is a, a, is a key issue. I go back to my own career. So I I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a teacher of mathematics, essentially, because I couldn't do anything <laughs> Um, I couldn't do other subjects I was better at mathematics but always wanted to be a teacher and it is such a powerful profession it is such a transformative one what education can do for individuals for community for individuals families and communities by the way I'm quoting a um, Ethiopian rural girl when I say that line Um, it's amazing so it's it's a profession that should be aspirational as a profession that used to have such high respect, but wherever you are, wherever you live, whatever country you know, it, there is there is an equity issue often linked to income, um, and that's been that's been my I suppose driving um, purpose that how do we make sure that underserved children actually have um, the same opportunities as uh, as children who perhaps are facing not the same challenges. So I taught, um, I went back to teach in a school where I used to be a student. Um, And in that school, learning outcomes were very low. And I remember really clearly thinking, I didn't even want to change the curriculum. We didn't have more budgets, but this was not good enough. And, And I was like... I suppose I was a dare. I was like, why am I so hard to teach? Why does it take more to teach me? Um, and in about three years, we had results improved by about 30 percentage point. And we were supposed to host the best practice day because our value add was amongst the top 2% in the country. And I remember saying, well, we didn't do anything magical. We just taught and we taught more effectively. We we took a very... Um, focus lens on what is it children could do and what is it they couldn't do and how did we plug that gap Um, and this essential thing about where are your students right now where do you want them to be and how are you going to get there is what um what sort of boils down to the teaching and learning process I think you know yes it's 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 complex it's um It's, I'm smiling when I say this, it's a joy to be in a classroom, but it's also an effort to be in the classroom. Um, But at the end of the day, whatever level you're teaching at is where are your students now? Assess them. Where do you want them to be? What are your curriculum goals? How are you breaking your curriculum goals down by year, by term, by lesson? And then what is the science of teaching that's going to allow your children to learn what you want them to learn? So when you think about just constantly refining that process, that is what's going to improve the quality of teaching and enhance learning. And therefore, um, when you have you know, ideas like lays, et cetera, um, at the classroom level, that's what it boils down to. Um, and the sector has moved forward. So there's like double minimum proficiency framework, which articulates by grades, What countries have agreed should um, minimum learning that should be taking place? We have national curriculums in countries, but you're not teaching the national curriculum. You're teaching the children that are in front of you. So you go back to what is it my children can do now? So when I, um, when I was teaching, I remember we had sets from one to six. And at that point, set one wasn't getting the minimum minimum expected level. Three years later, set five was getting them. So how are we constantly improving the teaching process to make that happen? And we have solutions. So one of the one of the focus um, in the space is what um, is known as structured pedagogy, and essentially that's a for me it's like the common it's common sense programming, and what we have is four elements. First of all is lesson guides and lesson plans for teachers. And I know there's some debate about autonomy versus, um, versus directing for teachers. Let's go back to the fact that I am a secondary school math teacher. I have I've loved it. I was a teacher for 12 years. I have a master's in applied mathematics and I have a doctorate in teaching and learning mathematics. I do not know how to teach grade one mathematics, let alone grade one literacy. I need some structure. And once I get that expertise, give me autonomy. But without it, it makes no sense. So having lesson plans is saying, if, or not not having lesson plans or lesser guides is saying, we know there's a science of teaching and learning early grade mathematics. We're not going to share it with you. We know there is a structure to teaching um number and and single digits and place values, we're not gonna share it with you. We know there is a way of um, um, teaching phonics and letter combinations. Not, I mean, why would you do that to teachers? Provide some structure, provide some guidance and help to make teachers' lives easier. As they get more expertise, they will, of course, adjust those lesson plans. They will, of course, build on it and do it better, but support teachers. So the first thing is about having those lesson plans, lesson guides. Secondly, is about having training that is practical. What am I going to be doing tomorrow in my classroom and how can this training help them? Not theory, not things that I can apply, but real practical training. Thirdly, is ongoing support. Teaching is actually an isolating um, profession. You close your classroom, you're on your own. So let's support teachers in their classroom with the real real problems they're facing. Let's help them to um, practice um, teaching ideas in a safe environment, get some feedback and apply it. And fourthly, this sounds so basic. But students need textbooks and they need workbooks and they need it on one to one basis so when you have those four elements together we know across many contexts high income low income middle income rural areas urban areas this this structure helps to lift um helps to increase learning outcomes so that's an important area clearly um even if you have high quality instruction and structured pedagogy is a way of make um, bringing that instruction on board, there are going to be students who, um, who need remediation. I had it in my own classrooms, um, had it in our departments, had it in our districts. So how do we have that ongoing support available to students to catch up with they risk of learning behind? After the pandemic, vast majority of children are needing remediation. So there is a need to focus the curriculum on what are the main things that children have to learn before they can Um, access the rest of the curriculum let's teach those children that let's give them time to learn this teach it um, and so they can access um, other aspects and my third point is going to be about assessment informed instruction which basically is know where your children are assess them and use that information to have instruction to children that is from their starting level so that you can speed up them being able to access it if the curriculum says to teach long division and your children do not know how to add to division, you're not going to be able to teach them. So go a little bit backwards to go forwards faster.
0: I love it. It all sounds common sense, but I guess most people need more people need to embrace this right?
1: Yeah and I, and what you know one of the programs that we support is the science of teaching program, which begins to sort of articulate this process. So there are you know, key elements that the sector is um, wanting to focus on, like structured pedagogy, assessment, informed instruction, language of instruction, what language do you um, begin teaching in, and the evidence obviously says mother tongue, um, but the country trans- wants to transition, how do we transition, what age do we transition, um, and would love for more of this pedagogical focused discourse to be informing the science of teaching work. The other um, aspect that, um, you know, when you said common sense reminded me, is the learning at scale study, which looked at eight programs that have shifted the dial on literacy outcomes in several countries and articulating what it is that they did um, to make this happen. It's an interesting study. um, It's focused on literacy. Um, There's another one coming up that will be focused on numeracy which obviously, as a math teacher, is something I care about, but something that you know, people all all people care
0: about. Absolutely. So you've given us a glimpse, or more than a glimpse, into your uh, your professional trajectory. There, you know, your 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 love of teaching and mathematics, and uh, and I love the fact that you said, "Look, I have a master's here and a PhD there, but I still can't do the year one first grade." You know, if. Uh, if you don't give me a hand, which I think uh speaks speaks volumes. Now, in between the teaching and where you are today in the Gates Foundation, you also found yourself at at PWC, uh leading girls education challenge and various other things. Give us a little bit more of a flavor into your your trajectory. Like how did it all happen?
1: <laughs> I'm not quite sure how it happened. Um I've I've been very privileged to have um really interesting roles and hopefully a roles where I've made a difference. But I remember um when I was teaching, um I just I used to look at people in offices, wonder what on earth could they possibly be doing. And and when I described to you about um you know the school that I was teaching at where I used to be a student, the local authority um invited me to be the maths advisor um so we did um i did that for a few years um and our results improved by about five percentage points in three years and was part of the national strategies which was an amazing amazing kind almost like a movement in england on improving outcomes for children and it was such a privilege to be part of that and to work with teachers in their classrooms i've been a teacher coach Um, I um, have also been one of Her Majesty's inspectors, where I think people assume that's sort of about inspecting um, schools. But one of the really interesting things that um, Ofsted does is inspect policy. So it inspected the national strategies, it articulated what was working well, what wasn't working well, um, and gave very clear recommendations. It does reports on the state of mathematics teaching, for example, literacy teaching and learning. And one of the joys um, of was looking at leadership and looking at schools that were high performing, but for underserved communities. What did those schools do to improve outcomes for children, as well as how they were supporting other schools? Um, And that was an amazing experience. um, And then from there, what did I do? I fell into international development by accident and found myself um, in the Department for International Development in Pakistan, leading um, a very large um, education program, co-leading a very large education program um, with new team, new concepts. Um, And it was wonderful to see that kind of work, but I was very surprised. And perhaps in the global education space, the focus being on inputs as opposed to outcomes and having come from Ofsted where we look at what are the outcomes for children, whether it's personal development and well-being, whether it's enjoy, um, enjoying and achieving, um, whether it's um, what they go on to do. The focus is always on what are the adult. What's the so what of what adults are doing? So you you don't just talk about teachers being trained. You don't talk about books being available, etc. You say so what by you doing all of these things? What are you, what's the difference you're making to learning outcomes? So I, I believe the global education sector has definitely um, shifted on that, and a much stronger focus on outcomes for children and that is the right thing because when you work backwards from what are the outcomes your programming um, will likely be more focused and that you'll be holding yourselves accountable for what is it that adults did that actually makes a difference to um, students outcomes. Um, I So I, I did lead the Girls Education Challenge at PwC and it was a privilege to see the partners um, working on this agenda But when I looked at the foundation and their focus, their laser-like focus on improving learning, and again, it goes back to we have to improve outcomes for children, and that's what attracted me to um, join the foundation and and work on this agenda. I do think we need to have... um, greater focus on what we're doing in the sector and a greater greater focus on outcomes and then build a body of evidence or synthesise the body of evidence around it to say this is what um, is most likely to work in improving that and then continuously, continuously refining that body of evidence um, and taking it further.
0: I mean a bit of a broad question here, but if a philanthropist is listening to this show and they're thinking, yes, you know, education is one of those things close to my heart. I wanna get involved, I wanna make something happen, I wanna deploy my resources to improve this area, where should they start? And again, I mean it's a bit of a broad question and perhaps a little bit unfair, but what <laughs> words of what words of wisdom would you would you share?
1: I would say start with humility. There are many, many people who are working on this agenda. And then I would say, start with the evidence and look at the evidence from all perspectives. So if we take the science of learning, much of the evidence is coming from high income countries. That doesn't mean it's not applicable to other settings. The question becomes, you know, let's interrogate, is it applicable? How is it applicable? how will it become applicable and how can we do it at scale um, and then the third thing i will say is look at who's already working on this and look at how to support their efforts Um, particularly in terms of countries that you want to focus on there will be partners there who are working on this or there'll be partners there perhaps all working at smaller scale how do we support and you what we call proximate partners to be able to work at larger scale So yeah, I think start with humility. you're not the first person who's asked this question and who wants to work on this. secondly, look at the evidence and make sure that the best evidence and the and the most I, I want to say greatest minds, but I don't necessarily mean the greatest mind and um, what I mean is, we need to have really high-quality programming for underserved communities. Don't tolerate excuses. Don't tolerate mediocrity for underserved. They need the bestest minds and um, the bestest programming. And I know bestest is grammatically incorrect.
0: <laughs> I didn't want to correct you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and,
1: and thirdly, um, look at the local Partners and local organisations
0: and leaning to support them more um and yeah, that's great. Are you feeling optimistic that as we are uh, well again, hopefully moving to some sort of post pandemic reality, that all of this talk about building back better and all of this, are you feeling optimistic that we that the pendulum is moving in the right direction, or or, or the jury's out?
1: Yeah, so I'm an impatient optimist. I <laughs> think that's the thing. Um, so I am feeling optimistic, and I think, you know, when when we look at the great set of people working on this, you look at the endeavour of people who wanted to make things better. We have tools, we have resources, we have evidence to say this is how to do this. Um, I've just returned from the Transforming Education Summit where clearly a focus on outcomes for um, learning was making a cut through and you know this this is like if you have been in school for seven years the least children should be able to get the very least the children should be able to have is the ability to read write and and do mathematics and I'm doing this as the least there's much wider things that they should be um, having having in addition to that so um, I think that focus I'm optimistic about how the major development partners are coming together. I don't know if you've seen that photo in Twitter on UNESCO, UNICEF, USAID, FCDO, the World Bank and Gates Foundation around a table. We need more people around that table, more people focused on the same things and really focusing on implementation. We know um, um, solutions have worked at, at relatively Small scale, we have evidence from the learning at scale study of them working at more scale. We need this to be happening much more um widely so that that nine out of ten stats, that gap is closed, and that we can shift um move on to other agendas um in education. So I am feeling optimistic. I think we have to capitalize on that energy right now, the availability of solutions and really focus on high quality implementation. We should not be sitting here in five years time, looking at the same statistics and saying, we we didn't do what we should have in the past five years.
0: I love the sense of urgency. I think that's, uh, that's exactly the right attitude. Key takeaway. You have a key takeaway for our listeners that you'd love for them to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's show? Yes.
1: Okay, first of all, um, the current status quo is not acceptable. It is not acceptable that nine out of 10 children in low-income countries in sub-Saharan Africa are not able to acquire basic literacy and numeracy school. The second takeaway is we have tools. We know um, what works. And then the third one is that this is a solvable problem. And there's nothing as exciting as a solvable problem. So let's do this, people.
0: I love it. I love it. Ashley thank you so very much for joining us today on the Do One Better podcast. It's been absolutely great hosting you on the show, seeing you again, and every time we speak, uh, learning from you as well. I love the energy and the insight.
1: Well, you're very kind. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Dr. Asia Kazmi, OBE, of the Gates Foundation. For information about this conversation and, and nearly 200 other interviews and case studies with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at ligi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thoroughly enjoyed producing today's show. And I'll catch you next week.